0: Well, greetings from Midtown Church. My name is Matt Tolender. I'm the leadership development pastor at Midtown, and I am so glad uh, that you are joining me for this teaching, whether you're part of our Midtown family or are just virtually visiting and checking out the pod. um, Whatever the case, whoever you are, wherever you are, I am so glad that you've tuned in. Uh, This teaching is going to look a little bit and feel a little bit different than the way we normally uh, do it. Of course, everything is different right now than the way we normally do it at Midtown because uh, we are in the middle of the coronavirus outbreak. So we are all uh, sheltering in place and we are socially distancing and we are staying home and working from home and um, taking all kinds of measures to uh, to flatten the curve and to slow the spread of this virus to protect ourselves and to protect people around us. And one of the measures that we've had to take as a church is to stop uh, – meeting in person and we have transitioned to meeting uh, online via Zoom during this season but this morning our our Zoom call was hacked and we had to cancel our service and so uh instead <laughs> i am just recording this teaching podcast style solo um so that we can send it out later so if you were uh, on that zoom call when it when it got hacked then very sorry for the disruption and if you weren't on yet and we're just looking forward to church then also sorry uh to you that we had to cancel the service but we will be back next week uh with uh we'll be back on zoom with a more uh secure service and a more secure call in any case we wanted you to have this teaching um because it is so important during this time of fear and anxiety and uncertainty and disruption is so important that we create space, that we very, very intentionally create space to hear from God and that we create space to seek him, that we create space to be with him, um, and that we create space to allow him to give us wisdom and understanding and to allow him to change and transform, uh, our consciousness, our awareness, our perception of the world and the universe, uh, that we live in until we see it the way that he sees it. Um, and so that is what we're going to do this morning. We are going to create that space, and we are going to engage with God uh, through a story from the New Testament in the Gospel of Mark, Chapter 4. And before we dig into it, uh, I just want to give you guys a couple, um, a couple suggestions. My first suggestion would be, uh, don't throw this podcast on in the background. I want to invite you to really participate in it. Um, And so I would encourage you to have your Bible uh, on hand, maybe a journal or like a piece of paper or something to take notes on if you're a a note taker. And then uh, I'd also encourage you to have um, Google nearby because at one point during this teaching, you may want to uh, look up a picture of something. So you may want to have that along as well. I'm now going to take a quick break from recording. And when I come back, we will dig into God's word together. Okay, we are back for this teaching from Mark chapter 4. We have our Bibles, we have our journals, uh, we have Google at the ready if we need to look at pictures, and we are ready to hear from God. And before we dive into the text, I wanted to uh, just share a story with you because I heard the, the craziest story a couple weeks ago, um, and it reminded me of something that I think is important for us to grasp. And it, it's a story about uh, Martin Luther King Jr., and his I Have a Dream speech, um, which we all we all know. I mean, it's one of the most famous speeches in American history. But the crazy thing about the, this speech, and I didn't know this until a couple of weeks ago, the craziest thing uh about the I Have a Dream speech is that the I Have a Dream portion of the I Have a Dream speech was unplanned. Uh it was it was improvised. Uh, and the reason it was unplanned is because uh Martin Luther King's speech writers hated it. they hated it. Um, he had been toying with that bit in some speeches for like the previous uh, like the whole previous year, and he had he had tried some of those lines in like Chicago and in Detroit, and his speech writers they just thought it was like it was so cliche and so trite and uh, and they thought it was just worn out. they didn't think it was uh, it was all that powerful and so they advised him uh not to include uh the phrase i have a dream in uh the speech that he was going to be giving in washington dc on august 28th uh 1963 and so uh he gets up to give his speech and it's supposed to be like a 10 minute speech and uh he gets about 10 minutes into it and he he's rounding third to head home and uh, up to this point, he's he's doing the speech totally as planned. And then about 10 minutes in, uh, Mahalia Jackson, who's a gospel singer and who performed earlier that day uh, and was a friend of Dr. King's, she was sitting kind of off to the side. And he's getting to the end of his speech, and he, he starts to say, you know, go back to Mississippi, go back to Alabama. And Mahalia Jackson behind him uh, starts to kind of heckle him. And she starts to call out to him, tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream, Martin. And he's going on and on, you know, go back to South Carolina and go back to Georgia. And she's going, tell him about the dream. And he's saying, you know, go back to the the slums and the ghettos in our northern cities. And she's back behind him saying, tell him about the dream. And if you watch the video of his speech, about 12 minutes in, he gets interrupted by some applause. And... It's during this time that he slides his notes off to the side and his posture changes. And after the applause dies down, he says um, that even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. And backstage, all of his speech writers and his aides all did a facepalm. They're all like, oh gosh, like I can't believe he's going to do that. I have a dream bit. In fact, like one, one person who was there actually said the aides, they're like back there like swearing and like cussing about it. Like they were so upset that he was about to do this part of the speech. Um, but he says, we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, but I still have a dream. And he proceeds to just to lay out one of the most significant uh, pieces of American rhetoric in history. Really one of the most significant pieces of rhetoric in world history. One of the most spiritually powerful uh, moments in history. And so what's the lesson there? The lesson, I think, is that for us, oftentimes, uh, when we are facing abnormal circumstances, when we're facing a great struggle or when we are suffering or when we are afraid or when our lives have been disrupted, I think very often we think what we need is to hear something new from God um, because the circumstances feel new. And so we want to hear something new from him. I mean, COVID-19 and coronavirus is new. Uh, Sheltering in place and and staying at home for this long, for a lot of us, is new. Uh, For many of us, perhaps the anxiety that we feel during this time is new uh, or is more powerful than it's ever been. And so we might think that in a time with so much new – that what we need actually from God is to hear something new. But I want to I wanna suggest this this morning, that maybe what we need right now is not to hear something new from God, but maybe what we need right now is to hear something true from him. Or I'll put it another way. Maybe, maybe what we need this morning is not to hear something novel from God, but actually instead to hear something powerful from him, and I think that what we're looking at this morning has the opportunity to be that for us uh, if we let it. And so, I want to pray for us now, and then we will get into Mark chapter 4 together. So, let me pray, um, Father in heaven, you are our great God, you are in control of the things that we can and cannot see. And we come to you now in many ways. Uh, We come to you in many circumstances. We come to you with many fears. We come to you with such a diversity of concern and anxiety and circumstance. And I know, uh, Lord, that you care for each one of us and you care about each unique individual fear and anxiety and circumstance that we all find ourselves in this morning. So I pray then that you would speak to us from your word, that you would comfort us, encourage us, challenge us, change us as we look to it. I believe you will. I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are in Mark chapter 4, and we're going to start with verse 35. And Mark chapter four, verse 35. Let me just give you a little bit of the background here. Jesus is in like a very intense, very busy season of ministry. He has been, uh, teaching. He has been, uh, healing. He has been casting out demons. Um, and he has been, uh, he's been, uh, teaching in parables. And, and so he's just been doing so, so much. And, uh, and he's he's tired and his disciples who are following him around and learning uh from him and learning to teach the way he teaches they are all also tired and uh he says to them in mark 4 verse 35 um he says to them let's go over to the other side okay so we have to stop here and I have to explain what he means the other but when jesus says the other side in verse 35, he's talking about the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, Jesus and his disciples, uh, when we find them in this story, are in a town called Capernaum. And this is where you might want to Google just an aerial map of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Jesus and his disciples are in a town called Capernaum. And Capernaum is in this region, which is right along the north shore of, of the Sea of Galilee, and the Sea of Galilee is sort of shaped like an ear. So imagine at the top of the ear, almost right in the middle at the top, uh, is this town called Capernaum. And there's two other towns nearby in that region called Chorazin and Bethsaida. And New Testament scholars uh, draw lines between those three towns and they call that region the Triangle. Get it? Three, three towns, three points, three lines—the triangle—and the triangle is significant because the triangle on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee is where all of the very devout, uh, religious Jews lived uh, at the time of Jesus. The Jewish people uh, were living in Judea, but they were—they uh, were under Roman law. Um, they were—they un- were in subjugation to Rome. And different groups of Jews reacted differently uh, to that situation. And some of those Jews decided to move away from Jerusalem and uh, other places in Judea that are off to the west from the Sea of Galilee. And they decided to move up to essentially the country on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, where they could uh, practice their religion and keep it uh, from being undefiled by um by roman religion which itself had roots in greek religion and greek thought uh and so they're trying to keep their religion pure and so in order to do that they've moved to the north shore and this area is where jesus decides to uh start his ministry and do most of his ministry he was from nazareth but uh, but he moved to Capernaum, and while Jesus was doing his ministry, Capernaum is kind of his, his home base, and uh, all but one of his disciples also come from this region. Only Judas Iscariot does not come from the triangle, but but the other 11 disciples all come from this region north of the Sea of Galilee. And so when Jesus says we have to go to the other side, uh, he's actually referring to to somewhere on the eastern shore, somewhere along the eastern shore, and the play if you 're looking at a picture of the Sea of Galilee, the place where Jesus and his disciples uh, are going to land is some it 's about like maybe two thirds granted we don 't know exactly where this was because it was so long ago, but scholars are pretty sure archaeologists are pretty sure it 's about two thirds of the way down the eastern coast of the Sea of Galilee uh but Generally, the region east of the Sea of Galilee is referred to as the Decapolis, D-E-C-A-P-O-L-I-S, Decapolis. It's a Greek word that means 10 cities, deca, 10, polis, cities, 10 cities. And it had grown to 12 cities by the time of Jesus, but it was set up by Alexander the Great uh, all the way back in uh, in the 300s B.C., Uh, When he came through during his conquest of the Eastern world, when he left, he had set up these little city states and he would leave soldiers in charge of them. And so on the Eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, you have this region, which is full of Greek religion, uh, Greek thought, Greek culture. um, And all of that ran very counter to Jewish religion, Jewish thought, and Jewish culture. To such a degree uh, that there was a lot of tension between the pagan, secular uh, Romans and and non Jews who lived on the east side of eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, who had been influenced by Greek thought. There's tension between them and and the uh, the religious Jews who live on the north shore. There's so much tension between them, in fact, uh, that the Jews looked. Down on the Decapolis, they looked down on people who were from there, they looked down on that region because of the pagan religion, and so the Jews did not travel there they at least the religious ones, the faithful ones, the faithful Jews did not travel to the Decapolis, they did not go to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee and they didn't speak of it by name. This is really interesting; they wouldn't even say. The Decapolis. They would. They had euphemisms. They would call it, um, for example, they would call it the other side, like Jesus does in thirty-five. Or um, some scholars think that in in Luke fifteen in the in the parable of the prodigal son, when Jesus says that a man had two sons and one of them took his share of the inheritance and went off to a far country, a far country is a euphemism for. The Decapolis, so they did not speak of it by name. In fact, they didn't even want to be caught looking in that direction. And the Jews had they had so much uh, resentment and apprehension for uh, the Decapolis region on the other side that um, superstition had arisen among rabbis in the time leading up to Jesus during what's called the Second Temple period of Judaism. Uh, superstition began to rise up among the rabbis that the devil himself actually lived on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. That's how offensive the the lifestyle and the culture and all of the uh, the pagan practices in the Decapolis, that's how offensive all of those things were to the faithful Jews on the North Shore. So just one verse into this story, we already have quite a bit of tension and we already have quite a bit of fear because here's Jesus who's supposed to be this rabbi, this uh, this Jewish teacher, and he's t- t- saying to his disciples, hey, you know what? Let's get in the boat. And uh, you know the place where you're not supposed to go or talk about or even look at? That is the place where we are going to go. And so immediately before they even get into the boat, Fear has entered into the equation for the disciples. Uh, they would have had all kinds of fears wrapped up in going to the other side of the sea. Uh, they would have been afraid of the influence of evil if they went over there. They would have been afraid of becoming impure themselves just by going there. Uh, they would have been afraid that if someone heard that they had been over there that that they might their reputation could suffer um, they probably had a fear. excuse me, they probably had a fear of demonic presence. And then mingled with all of that fear is also their fear of and their judgment of outsiders. And I think this is the one that Jesus wants to, to deal with. He wants to deal with their fear of outsiders. And so he decides we are going to go across to the other side. And we are going to go after the least likely people in the darkest place, which is what the kingdom of God does. It is what Jesus did. It is what God is still doing today. If you want to know where God is going and where he's working, he is going to the least likely people and he is working in the darkest places. So the disciples have all kinds of fear wrapped up in this thing. <laughs> the tension is already there before they get into the boat. And uh, let's look now at verse 36. Leaving the crowd, they took him, Jesus, along with them in the boat, just as he was. In other words, they left right then. Um, and actually, earlier in verse 35, it tells us they left in the, in the evening. So it's a nighttime, and they take Jesus just as he is. They get in the boat, and... Um, the text tells us in verse 36 that other boats were with him and verse 37 and there arose a fierce gale of wind and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. So now we have disruption. We had anxiety and apprehension and now we have disruption uh, because of this storm. And what's interesting (laughs) is that, um, you know, a lot of these disciples were fishermen, but they were pretty scared of the sea. Uh, they did not like deep water. If you read in the Old Testament, deep water is often used to symbolize uh, hell or the underworld or death. They would call uh, the Sea of Galilee, they would call it the abyss, and they would call it uh, the place of the deep. And so, even though they, some of these disciples spent a lot of time on the Sea of Galilee because they were fishermen, they primarily did that close to the shore. They did not like to venture out into deepest wa- into the deep water. And wouldn't you know it, the path from Capernaum, on the north shore of the sea, to where they're going to end up on the eastern side is going to take them right over the deepest part of the Sea of Galilee. Now, if you're looking at a picture of the Sea of Galilee from above, if, you, if, if it happens to be a topographical map, you will see that it's surrounded on, on uh, several sides by hills. And so the result is that the Sea of Galilee basically sits at the bottom of a wind tunnel. And on one side of the sea, you have one kind of climate. On the other side of the sea, you have another kind of climate. And when those two climates mix and you add wind, what you get as a result is storms. And the Sea of Galilee is only 200 feet deep at its deepest point, um, which is about as deep as Lake Travis is for, by comparison for people who, uh, who need a point of reference. It's only about 200 feet deep at its deepest point. So it's not that deep. It's deep enough to scare the disciples for sure, you know, because they're first century people. They don't have scuba gear. But it's not that deep. So what that means is that it is very, very easily whipped up into storms. And so it's totally natural that they uh, that they encountered a storm, they probably expected something like this to happen going out in the deep water, and so they are they have they already had anxiety and apprehension about crossing the sea, and now they have disruption because this storm appears verse thirty eight Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, so okay, we have this storm and uh, and Jesus is asleep now the boat that they were in. Uh, we're not talking about a houseboat, right? We're, it's not a ship. Um, it's not a yacht. The, this boat is pretty small. It might have had a small sail, but it could have been rowed by four people. Uh, we have actually, uh, archaeologists have pulled a fishing boat out of the Sea of Galilee in 1986. And if that boat serves as a pretty good idea of what uh, other Galilean fishing boats look like, then we're talking about a boat that is 30 feet long, seven feet wide, and only about four feet deep. So this is a small boat and it's open air. And so if verse 37, the waves are breaking over the boat and the boat is filling up and Jesus is on the stern, verse 38, asleep on a cushion. Jesus is laying there asleep while waves literally crash over his body. Um, So it's not just that there are loud noises and thunder and flashes of lightning, which would be more than enough to wake me up. It's not enough that the waves are tossing the boat this way and that, but water itself is splashing into the boat and Jesus is getting wet and he's still asleep. And so the disciples, uh, they come to him, they wake him up and they say to him, uh, this is verse 38. They say to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And then in the, in the Matthew account of this story, they ask him to, uh, to save them. And verse 39, Jesus got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. Now, interesting stuff. Interesting, interesting stuff is happening in verse 39. Uh, Jesus stands up and he, he rebukes the wind and the waves. He tells the wind and the waves to behave themselves. Now, we have to think about this a little bit. Um, that is actually incredibly significant. It's, it's, it's not just that he has demonstrated that he has the power to control nature. I mean, that's, that's one kind of incredible. But that's not really what he's trying to show his disciples here. He's not trying to show them that he has power over nature. They already knew that. They had already seen him do miracles. They had already seen him cast out demons. Look, they knew he had the power. So what is he doing by calming the wind and the waves? Well, here's the deal. At this point in time, uh, these disciples would not have written copies of their scriptures. If they wanted to know their scriptures, they would have had to memorize them. And so rabbis would would help their disciples memorize scripture. Um, little Jewish children started memorizing scripture at a very, very early age. And so Jesus is constantly referencing the old Testament stories when he's with his disciples and he references them with his words, but sometimes he references them with his actions. And that's what's happening right here. I want to read to you from, uh, from Psalm 89 and I want to start in, uh, in verse 5. So Psalm 89, I'm going to read verses 5 through 9. Listen to what this says. The heavens will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the Holy Ones. For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the Almighty is like the Lord, a God greatly feared in the council of the Holy Ones and awesome above all those who are around him? O Lord God of hosts, who is like you? O mighty Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you. Now listen closely, verse 9. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. There are at least three different psalms that speak to God calming the wind and the waves. And in each case, what is the lesson in those Psalms? What are those Psalms about? They're about his faithfulness. They're about his faithfulness to his people. So it's not just that he has the power. It's not just that Jesus has the, the power to, to calm the wind and the waves. He is making a reference to this Psalm because he's trying to teach his disciples a lesson in the character of God. He's trying to teach them a lesson in the character of God. Look what he says to them in verse 40. So back in Mark chapter four, he's hushed the wind and the waves. It's become perfectly calm. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Do you still have no faith? Now, this, it seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? Like at, at first glance, surface level reading, it seems like, he, like, like he's kicking them while, while they're down. I mean, they just had this moment, this huge storm. They really felt like they were about to die. Um, they probably felt, felt like they had encountered um, demonic and evil forces out on that sea. And Jesus calls them and just turns around, and he treats them like they were silly, to be afraid. I mean, how does that make sense? Is Like, is he being cruel? Is he putting them down? What's the point? He rebukes them. He corrects them for their lack of faith. But they had just said um, – if you look in the Matthew account of this story, they just asked him to save them. So it's clear that that they do believe that Jesus has some sort of agency or some sort of power, control, some sort of ability. They do believe that he can help them in the situation. I mean, Lord save us sounds a lot like an expression of faith, doesn't it? So here's here's the nuance. Here's the tricky part. I don't think Jesus is chastising them uh, because they didn't have faith in him. I think they did have some faith in him. They'd seen him do the miracles before. They asked him to intervene on their behalf. It's not that they don't have faith in Jesus. The problem is that they don't have the faith of Jesus. Okay, I'm going to say that again. It's not that they didn't have faith in Jesus. The problem is that they didn't have the faith of Jesus, meaning that they didn't have the kind of faith, the degree of faith um, that Jesus had. So um, they had trusted that Jesus could do something to help them. But that faith in Jesus' ability... Uh, had not crystallized for them into uh, like a settled conviction that they were really safe in God's hands. And so essentially Jesus says to him, you wouldn't be afraid if you had confidence in God, which it sounds naive. Um, it sounds simple. Maybe it sounds a little bit mean to you. Um maybe it sounds maybe it sounds trite or cliche but here's something that's really important to understand and um if you understand this you'll be miles ahead of where uh many Christians are here's something that is so important for you to understand and it's this unless you think the way Jesus thinks his directions for how to navigate life will not make sense to you. (laughs) That's it. That's the secret. That's something that Christians don't talk about at parties. Unless you think like Jesus thinks, his advice doesn't make any sense. Um, If you don't have kingdom consciousness, if you don't understand yourself to be alive in God's kingdom, then instructions on how to live in God's kingdom will not appear useful to you. In fact, like sometimes Jesus' teaching is the opposite of conventional wisdom. So, for example, like in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, when Jesus is teaching on the subject of worry, he, he says to his listeners, uh, don't worry about what you will eat, drink, or wear, and don't worry about tomorrow. Like, what kind of Pollyanna-ish, naive, ridiculous advice is that? In what universe... Does that kind of posture even make sense? It makes sense in God's universe. So here's an illustration. Okay, imagine that you are a pilot and you are, you're a competent pilot. Right, You know how to fly a plane. You know that pulling back on the stick makes the nose of the plane go up and takes you up. And you know that pushing forward on the stick takes the nose of the plane and, and uh, turns it downward and causes you to descend. So imagining that you are flying a plane and it's a cloudy day and you are enjoying yourself but there's a lot of clouds and uh, suddenly the clouds part and you realize that the ground is rapidly approaching. You come out of the clouds and all you you can see is the ground. And because you're a competent pilot, you know that you have to pull up on the stick to get the nose to come up to pull your plane out of the dive and get back up into the air. And so you reach for the stick to pull it back. And before you can grab the stick, a radio transmission from the control tower stops you. And the voice on the radio says, push the stick forward. And you think, well, that can't be right, because forward means down. And so you ignore the voice, and you pull back as hard as you can on the stick, and suddenly you are like pointed directly at the ground, and the whole world rises up to meet you, and you explode into flames, burnt to a crisp. What was the problem? What went wrong? Why did pulling back on the stick cause you to go down? Say it with me, Top Gun fans. It's because I was inverted, right? You were flying upside down. If you're flying upside down and you go to pull up, you're going to send yourself down. And this is what it's like getting advice from Jesus. Jesus' advice on how to live in God's universe only makes sense to us if we have sort of an understanding and an awareness that we do in fact live in God's universe and that God does in fact know some things about how the universe is supposed to work. So very often the wisdom of God and conventional wisdom seem like opposite things, but one, and one of them, the, the wisdom of God will be very, very useful to people who are interested in living in the kingdom of God. But the wisdom of God will seem like foolishness and will seem not useful at all to people who do not have kingdom consciousness, who do not have an awareness of, uh, of their life in God's kingdom. So here's the principle. The principle is that if you could see as God sees, you'd do as God says, right? If you could see as God sees, then you would do as God says, and you would be perfectly safe as a result. That's what, that's what the faith of Jesus is. That's what Jesus knows um, that we need to be clued in on. So Jesus has a—he uh, has some assumptions. I want to talk a little bit more about this idea of the faith of Jesus. Jesus has some assumptions. He has some assumptions about God. Like, for example, he has the assumption that God is good, right? Um, so imagine... If, uh, imagine what would change in your life if you started operating under the assumption that God is good. Now, maybe you, you, know, you might think God is good. But imagine what would change if you started to live your life as if that were actually true, as if you actually think God is good. What would change? How would your life look different? Or this one. Here's another assumption that Jesus had about God. One assumption that Jesus had about God was that God is attentive God is paying attention. Now, just think about this. This, this, is, this one is the one that really blew me away uh, as I was studying and thinking through this. God is attentive. God is paying attention. There's nothing slipping by him. There's nothing going unnoticed, not in our world and not in my life. He knows the hairs on my head not a sparrow falls to the ground that he doesn't notice it. And so one of Jesus' assumptions about God, and you see it in his teaching, especially the Sermon on the Mount, is that God is attentive. Okay? How does that impact my experience of fear and anxiety? Um, What would change about the way I see the universe and the way I navigate my life and navigate my world if I actually believe that God was attentive, that God was paying attention, that God took an active interest in what is going on in my life, because he does. That's something that Jesus believed about God. Here's another thing that Jesus believed about God. Jesus believed that God is competent. He believed that God is competent. He believed that when God sets out to do something, he is able to do it. And then lastly, uh, Jesus believes that God is faithful. He believes that God is faithful. He believes that God is perfectly consistent and committed uh, in showing up for his people. God is faithful. So take these four things, Jesus' four assumptions about God, that he is good, he's attentive, he is competent, and he is faithful. And I also want to look at... a. Uh, Jesus' assumptions about the universe that we live in and the world that we live in. Jesus has some assumptions about the world that we live in, about our universe, and he lives his life based on these assumptions. Here's one assumption. God designed it. God designed this universe. He designed our world. God created this universe and created our world. Uh, God fills the universe and fills our world, meaning he is always with us and he is always around. And God rules the universe and he rules our world. Then this is what we mean when we say the kingdom of heaven. Uh, The kingdom of heaven is just very simply, it's all the ways in which God is working within the universe that he designed, created, fills, and rules. Actually, I'm going to back this up and I'm going to turn this into a definition and you can you can back up and pause and play and and write this down cuz this is so important. This is what the kingdom of of heaven is. The kingdom of heaven, if you see that phrase or the kingdom of God, the kingdom the kingdom of heaven is simply all the ways in which a good, attentive, competent, and faithful God is working within the universe, which he designed, created, fills, and rules. That's the kingdom. It's all the ways in which a good, attentive, competent, faithful God is working within the universe, which he designed, created, fills, and rules. Now, what's the implication of that? If I can live in that kingdom with that God, what is the implication for my life? Here's what I think it is. If God is good, attentive, competent, and faithful, then he's also trustworthy. Isn't he? I mean, if God, if God's, uh, if his posture toward me is one of wanting to inject goodness and blessing into my life, and he's taking an active interest in what's happening in my life, and he's able to to do the work in my life that he wants to do, and he's perfectly consistent in showing up to do that work, if he is all of those things, then he's also trustworthy. And if a trustworthy God created, designed, fills, and rules the universe that I live in and I belong to him, then his universe is a perfectly safe place for me to be. If God is good, attentive, competent, faithful, then I can trust him. And if I have an interactive and intimate relationship with a trustworthy God in the universe that he made, then his universe is a perfectly safe place for me to be. So in other words, the parts of you that last forever can't be touched. Your soul, your spirit, your identity, uh, your personality, your personality. Um, um. Um. Your conscience, uh, your love, your life. Uh. Oh, like your. You know. Your earthly body will die, but you won't. Uh, your earthly treasure will pass away, but your eternal investments won't. That's what Jesus says. You'll suffer in this life, but that in the kingdom, that's actually a good thing because it will make you a more mature person if you let it. It's very, very, um, it's almost unsettling to start to investigate all of the different implications for what happens when you have the faith of Jesus, not just faith in Jesus, but when you have the kind of faith in, in God the Father that Jesus had in God the Father, all of the implications uh for that they are so challenging uh, to to all of our our um, to all of our conventions of the way things work um, and it produces what I have come to calling sort of a um, a holy detachment, holy detachment um when you read the teachings of Jesus, you see that he seems to be uh totally detached from things like physical death or um you know uh uh material possessions and things like that wealth um so many things that we uh look for to to uh, to put confidence in, and that we look for and think are necessary for our own security, uh, Jesus seems to be detached from some of that. I mean, the way that he talks about death uh, is just very surprising. He says things like, um, oh, those who keep my word will not taste death. <laughs> he says that in the Gospel of John. I mean, Jesus does not seem to think that Physical death is quite the big deal that we think it is. In fact, when Jesus acknowledges the suffering of death, um, he acknowledges it in the people who are left behind. Uh, remember um, when, when Jesus' friend Lazarus dies, and his sisters are so sad, and Jesus goes. And um, Jesus knows that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, but he still connects empathetically with the people who Lazarus left behind in their pain. Um, even though they're going to see their brother again so soon. So it's not that there's not pain in death, but Jesus Jesus does not seem to think that physical death is any kind of threat for a person who lives in God's kingdom. And man, you could spend just hours hashing that one out, and I don't have the time. But having the faith of Jesus produces holy detachment. So here's what that looks like. Having the faith of Jesus, having the confidence in God the Father that Jesus had, it frees us to enter into rest. Um, it frees us to enter into rest. It frees us from going to work, managing our environment to try and, um, and secure ourselves. It frees us from having to uh, protect ourselves from everything in the world. It frees us from uh, putting confidence in in things that can't support us. It helps us to stop worrying about things that are God's responsibility, and it helps us to start focusing on our own responsibilities. Uh, um, having the faith of Jesus uh, keeps us from delusions of self-sufficiency and control And it gives us permission to admit to other people that we're insecure or that we are afraid or that we feel threatened. Um, And I think this sort of posture of the heart, this holy detachment, this faith of Jesus, I think this is what Paul is describing in Philippians 4 uh, where he writes this. He writes, Do not be anxious about anything. So, From Jesus and from Paul, both in the Bible, we have do not worry as a moral command. So worry is a sin. Worry is saying, I don't trust God. Worry is saying um, God is not good or attentive or um, uh, competent or faithful. If we stop believing that God is one of those things, worry enters into our life. Paul has written, do not be anxious about anything. Anything, don't let anything in life undermine the confidence that you have in God. What does he say to do instead? But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. In other words, the, the, the key to dealing with anxiety is to just admit to God that you're having trouble trusting him. I mean, how easy is that? he knows already he sees it but there's something powerful that happens when we come to god and we say i don't understand what's going on i'm having trouble seeing the bigger picture um i don't know what's on the other side of this i don't know i'm going to make it through this uh, i don't know what happens next i don't know what to do i don't know where to go we bring these things to god and we say okay god there's a lot of stuff that we don't know but you know all things So show me what to do. So we're saying, okay, I've come out of the clouds in my plane. I see the ground rapidly approaching. And instead of going with my instincts, I'm going to listen to the voice on the radio. (laughs) The one who has a vantage point and is watching me and is looking at what's happening and will help. And maybe he'll tell me to push down on the stick. And if he says push down on the stick, then push down on the stick is what I need to do to be safe. Paul says that when we when we make our requests known to God in prayer, he says the result is that the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And when I read that phrase in Philippians 4, peace of God, which transcends all understanding, there's not a better picture of that than Jesus asleep in the boat with lightning, thunder, wind, waves, and water sloshing over him while he snores. That is the peace that he had as a human being. And that is the peace that he wants us to have as well. He said to his disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. He wants us to have this kind of peace. He wants to guard our hearts and our minds now, let me just say this i'm like i 'm speaking really to the the spiritual aspect of anxiety. Um, I know that like fear and anxiety are complex emotions, and the reason they 're complex emotions is because we are complex humans. God saw fit to design us that way and to give us these complex emotions and Obviously, there's the spiritual aspect of fear and anxiety, but there's also, you know, relational aspects and emotional aspects and biological aspects. And I don't have the expertise to speak to all of those different things. I'm not an expert on all of those parts. Um, I don't even really consider myself an expert in the spiritual part. Uh, really, the only part of this that I consider myself an expert in is just the part where I am an anxious person and I have to deal with my own fear my own anxiety um, in life. I used to not think I was an anxious person because the the stereotype in my head was like that was the anxious people are neurotic. Like I always thought of like Woody Allen, um, you know, like an Annie Hall or something as as like a a mascot for what anxiety looks like. Uh, and that's not my personality, but uh, man, in my early twenties, I started to become aware that man, I really have. Some issues with anxiety. I they, I just started to notice them, and they were kind of brought to my attention. and uh, And I put off working on those for years. It was about four years after that that I finally started to pay attention to them. And part of the way uh, I deal with my anxiety is by seeing a counselor. Um, I talk to a therapist once a week. I Do not miss that appointment. It is one of my favorite things that I do every week. It has blown the roof off of my, uh, off of my spiritual growth in my spiritual life. And the reason I share that is just to say, look, like I, I am not naive and Midtown church is not naive. And we do not presume to think um, that uh, uh, the anxiety is simple (laughs) And that um, that it has a simple answer. Because it doesn't. Complex problems have complex solutions. But I think it starts, I think the starting point for dealing with anxiety has to do with our awareness or our lack of awareness of God's kingdom in the world around us. I think it has to do with our trust or our lack of trust in God. I think that's the starting point. It may not be the only thing um, that we have to deal with when it comes to our anxiety. We may have to see, uh, a professional. We may have to confess some sin to somebody. We may have to say some apologies. We may have to change our diet. We may have to start exercising. We may have to, um, you know, make some relational changes in our life. There are all sorts of things that we may have to do as we, you know, work through anxieties in our life. Um, Anxieties that were in our lives long before we ever heard of what coronavirus was and anxieties that will be in our lives when coronavirus um, is something that we speak about in the past tense. Um, The starting point for working out anxiety is to do some really serious self-evaluation and to ask ourselves, do I trust him? Uh, Do I really believe uh, that God is trustworthy. Do I do I really believe that God is good and am I prepared to live my life as though that were the case? Do I believe that God is paying attention? Do I believe that God is able to accomplish his purposes in my life and that he is a competent ruler of this universe? And do I am do I think that God is faithful? When I look back at my life, do I see that God has consistently shown up for me? Um, when we are asking those sorts of questions, we are allowing God to challenge us and to shape us, change us, and help us see things from his perspective. We are allowing him to create in us the faith that Jesus had in him. We are becoming more intimately, intimately connected with him. We are learning to see the way he sees. And as that happens, I do believe that we will feel safer and safer and safer. Let's look at the end of our passage now. We left off in verse 41 of Mark chapter 4, where it says this, after Jesus has uh, calmed the storm and he's turned to the disciples and he said why are you afraid do you have no faith do you still have no faith verse 41 the disciples became very much afraid and said to one another who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him and verse 41 shows us that two shifts have happened for the disciples one is that they've got they've shifted from being afraid of the storm to being afraid of Jesus, which makes total sense. I mean, he just got up, told the wind and the waves to behave themselves and they did it. So naturally the disciples are going to be afraid of Jesus after he's demonstrated so much power, but their question is really instructive. And it tells us something about what's happening inside because they ask, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And I mentioned earlier that there are three Psalms that all have to do with, uh, With God uh, calming the wind and the waves. And each one is supposed to highlight God's faithfulness and his protection of and provision for his people. And I want to read again just two verses from one of those Psalms, Psalm 89, verses 8 and 9, which says this O Lord God of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Lord? So you see the parallel between the questions? Mark four forty one, who then is this? Psalm eighty-nine eight. Who is like you, O mighty Lord? And then the Psalm goes on. Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. So here's what I think has happened. I think Jesus is a good teacher. I think his disciples knew their scriptures because he taught the scriptures to them, and I think they would have recognized uh, this psalm in what he was doing. I think they would have seen him uh, hush the wind and the waves, and then start to look at one another and go, wait a minute, wait a second, this sounds very familiar. And as it starts to dawn on them, and as they start to remember, wait a minute, oh, that's from a psalm, wait, 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 what else is in that psalm? What else is happening in that Psalm? I think they're starting to realize that Jesus has this connection to the divine. So when they're saying who, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him, they're making an observation. They're going like, wait a minute. He's kind of like the Lord. (laughs) He's like God. God stills the wind and, and calms, uh, the waves. And now Jesus is doing it. Jesus is, is like God. He is like the Lord. Um, They don't fully understand who he is yet. They don't understand yet that he's the son of God. They don't understand yet that he's the Messiah. That will come later. But for right now, they've shifted from just knowing that Jesus is powerful to knowing that Jesus has a connection to Yahweh, their faithful covenant-keeping God. And this shift that they've made is important because of what's about to happen next in the story. Remember that the storm at sea is an interruption. It's disruption. Uh, Jesus and his disciples were going to the other side, and this happened in the in-between. It happened in, in the middle, and it's so true. It happened in this story, and it happens in our lives, and I have to believe it's happening now, that God uses moments and seasons of interruption and disruption to prepare us for what is coming next. And that is what is happening In the story, because after the storm at sea, when they reach the other side, immediately they are confronted by a man possessed by thousands of demons. And uh, everybody who lives near this guy is terrified of him. They try to chain him up. Um, He lives in a graveyard and he can break chains and he's very powerful and he's he's wild and he's untamed and and he he cuts himself with stones i mean it's this very visceral image that mark paints of this person and you know what's so interesting is that everybody's afraid of him except for jesus and the disciples now how does that happen because the disciples before they even left for this area. Before they ever even got to the storm at sea, they would have already had fear and apprehension about setting foot on this side of the sea. But the eyewitness accounts that we have of this story don't mention the disciples being afraid. They only mention the disciples being afraid during the storm and afraid of Jesus after he demonstrates that he is more powerful than the storm and that he has a connection to God. So, Jesus has effectively taught them a lesson. He has effectively taught them a lesson. He has, in a moment of disruption, he has prepared them for what is coming next. And now they're unafraid. And what happens in the Decapolis after this is, totally, totally amazing. After Jesus uh, heals this demon-possessed man, he sends him back into the Decapolis to go tell people what God had done for him. And then Jesus and the disciples go back to the triangle on the North Shore. They go back to Capernaum. But then Jesus comes back to the Decapolis and what happens when he comes back is so cool. Because this time, instead of being confronted by uh, a man possessed by demons, they're confronted by people who are bringing uh, a deaf person to Jesus so that the deaf person can hear. What an incredible, incredible symbol. Because what's about to happen is that the message of the good news of the kingdom of heaven is about to uh, to be broadcast or is being broadcast in the Decapolis. And so what is Jesus going to do? He's going to show up and he is going to make a deaf person here as a symbol to say there are many deaf people. (laughs) There are many deaf people in this area. They are spiritually deaf and they are about to hear the best news that they have ever heard that the kingdom of God is drawing near to them. I don't know what... God has planned for you after this this outbreak. I don't know what what is coming next for our church. I don't know what comes next for our city. I mean, I I really have no idea, but like one thing I'm confident of is that if we choose faith over fear in this time, and if we choose to put our confidence in him and not in ourselves, and if we choose to trust that he is good and attentive and uh, uh, competent and faithful, then in the meantime, in the messy middle, in the interruption, in the disruption, he will teach us things that we need to know that so that we'll be prepared for whatever comes next. He will make us more mature and he will make us more like himself. If we participate in it and if we allow Him to do so. So that is my prayer for you this morning. Um, May you, may you cultivate a relationship with God that is intimate and interactive. May you begin to trust that God is good, attentive, faithful, and competent. May your confidence in God grow until it becomes a settled conviction, and as a result, may you come to the awareness that if you belong to God, then God's universe is a perfectly safe place for you to be. May God make it so for you. Be blessed in Jesus' name.